We're recording our Sabrina episode live at Hilda Spellman Steakhouse in Westbridge. I've got a special drink here from none other than Sabrina Spellman. Before I drink, I've got to say, this place is absolutely timeless. I've never eaten in a more elegant place, and the music is sublime. All right, well, pour us a couple glasses so we can toast to another episode of this fine show. Wow, this drink tastes magical. I could sing its praises from the rooftops. Well, let's hear it then. Matt, you sounded just like Rick Astley. What if... You raised me up so I can stand on mountains. Paul, why would you trick me into thinking that you sound like Josh Groban? Are you playing a clip from your phone or something? Of course not, it's my real voice. How is this possible? Sabrina! Sabrina. Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, for our next Sabrina episode of the podcast. This time, we will be covering the 1998 episode, The Band Show. Now, this is one that I have some pretty fond memories of, and... It was presented to you, Paul, in an option of either this or the episode The Crucible, which is more of a Salem-centered episode, a witch trials-centered episode, and you selected the band show, and honestly, because I know that uh, you had quite a reaction to this, I'm kind of glad that you did. So this was a very difficult decision for me, because I knew Matt wanted The Crucible because it talks about the Salem witch trials. It seems like a very serious episode going into a lot of depth about how they were killed, how they were tried. It seemed like a very somber thing that I felt was maybe more reserved for Halloween where we could more, you know, talk about that along with like our Hocus Pocus episode and whatnot. And so, but I saw the band and again, I had no knowledge of what that meant, but it just seemed more lighthearted, more fun. And I did look up the description of like Sabrina. Hey, she's starting a band and she uses magic to be good. And I was like, hey, you know, that sounds like something that'll be good and lighthearted and fun. So it's kind of that type of decision about did I really want an episode going deep into the witch trials, which I felt like Matt probably wanted to do or go with what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to like lie to Matt and be like, hey, this is what I want because this is what you want. So I was just honest and I was like, yeah, I probably want to do the band. So that was what, you know, where I went with the band and oh my goodness, uh, great decision for me because this was far more amazing than I ever would have imagined. And I'm sure, you know, the crucible is going to be a great episode as well. Yeah. That was why I gave you the option here because I was sort of torn. I, you know, I do, want to do the Crucible episode, but I wanted to do this one as well. And they're so opposite. 
that I just, I couldn't decide. And so I figured I'd put it in your hands having, you know, been the one to narrow it down to the two. I figured I'd, I'd let you make the, the choice here. And so we're going to go through the episode and narrate and discuss. But before we do that, we have our segment back to the 1990s. This week, we will be talking about February, because this episode of Sabrina came out February 27th, 1998. At time of recording, we are just a couple of days past the 25th anniversary of this episode, actually. So I think that maybe your choice of this one was meant to be, because we have hit it right around the 25-year mark. So in this segment, I will be going through games, movies, shows, and music that were popular, that were top of the charts around this time. So we're going to start off with video games. There were not actually a ton in February. This was a big year for games. I went back to the end of January to include Resident Evil 2. But as far as in February itself, we had Xenogears, and 1080 Snowboarding was released, which I I remember definitely seeing the cartridge of, but I never actually played back in the day. Going over to movies, we have some top films in February. You've Got Mail, which I specifically remember just because it was a reference to logging into AOL, and it would say, You've Got Mail. I never actually saw the movie, but I just remember it because of that reason. We also have The Wedding Singer and Billboard Dad, which was an Olsen Twins film. Moving over to shows, TV shows, Seinfeld again. I think every one of these that we've done in the 90s, Seinfeld has been at the Seinfeld, ER, Veronica's Closet, Friends, and Touched by an Angel were the top shows. And then finally with music, we had at the beginning of the month, Together Again by Janet Jackson, Nice and Slow by Usher, and right at the very end, My Heart Will Go On by none other than Celine Dion. And that is the list. Wow. Uh, A ton to unpack there. These honestly all kind of hit with me. You know, I can remember so much of this stuff. So to begin with video games, you had mentioned uh, 1080, great snowboard game. It was aligned with, you know, something like Tony Hawk and SSX Tricky also existed at this time because it had the cool theme song. But the game I played most was 1080. Really cool game. In terms of movies, you've got mail. Just a great romantic comedy, if you will. Just awesome movie. Touched by an Angel TV. I mean, that was a, that was a great one growing up, especially the PD episode where they sing Testify to Love. I mean, that always brings a tear to my eye. Such a great show, just heartwarming. So many good things going on at this time. Yeah, this was a really good list. And I've never seen You've Got Mail, but I remember at the time just being mesmerized by the fact that it was a reference to computers and the internet because that wasn't really all that common uh, necessarily uh, at the time. They even had the little like mailbox logo that was integrated into the poster. That kind of blew my mind a little bit. I bet watching it now, it would be a real nostalgia trip just seeing the old dial-up format of when you log into the screen, when you get into the internet and you've logged in. Oh yeah, <laughs> pure nostalgia with that. Obviously playing on the culture at the time. 
and oh, my heart will go on. Dude, I want to do Titanic. I want to do an episode of that. One of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> Our Titanic episode will be eight <laughs> hours long <laughs> as we narrate the entire film and then discuss it. It would be truly Titanic. But that's probably, in all honesty, it's probably my favorite movie song of all time. Because they do such a good job weaving that song in throughout the movie. And then you get the the end where the ship is destroyed and it comes to life and everyone's there. I don't want to go too much detail about it because I want to save it for that episode. But again, tears every time with that scene. It's so beautifully done. And it's set up throughout the entire movie. So to me, that song is really related to Titanic. I'm assuming that's why this song was popping off on the Billboard charts. I I can't imagine the song's that good independent of the movie, right? No, I mean, I listen, I you know, I don't want to make any wild statements uh, from my end about what may or may not be my favorite movie soundtrack, movie tie-in song of all time because I feel like I need to, you know, give that a little bit more thought, but as far as you picking it, I can't argue with that. It's seamless. It's really woven through the fabric of the film. So I 100% can see that. All right. So now that we've situated ourselves into February of 1998, and we have an idea of what's going on, what we are listening to and watching, now we're going to jump into this episode of Sabrina. So I will be taking us on the ride here. I will be narrating And then we will get Paul's reactions after we pause after various scenes. Our episode opens, as it often does, in the Spellman kitchen. And we see Zelda, Aunt Zelda, saying that Hilda is not back yet from her audition. Sabrina says that she has a lot of musical talent and that she ought to bore other people with it. Zelda mentions that it's not like the golden age, Vienna in the 1700s. In those days, there were more orchestras than consumption wards. Clearly, the Spellman ants have been around for quite some time, and they remember this golden age of, of classical music. But for Sabrina, this, you know, teenage witch, she doesn't seem to be too impressed by that. But Sabrina does say that she is sure that her aunt will get the job. Just at that moment, A violin comes flying through the French doors of the kitchen and hovers right above the table. A second later, the bow of the violin flies through the air and pierces it, making music notes pop out of the violin. Sabrina stares at the punctured violin for a moment and says she has a strange way of celebrating. Going into the introduction music... These intro scenes I always really enjoy because basically Sabrina goes through multiple different costume changes. She's standing in front of a mirror and she uses magic to change her outfit. The first few are always the same, but the last one is always different. And there's normally a a one-liner that accompanies it. So as she goes through her costume changes and the music is playing, her last one ends up being a bunny suit. And she says, I got my ears pierced. So Salem here says that classical music isn't the gravy train it used to be. And so it is interesting because they are witches, right? They've obviously lived through all these decades, Salem included, right? And what are your thoughts on that? It seems like, you know, Hilda, obviously, though a witch who can just probably use magic to perform spells, decided maybe, arguably, to learn the violin 
learn classical music, and yet it's not appreciated at this time, right? And is classical music something that should be appreciated over the modern day music? Now, here again, we're in the nineteen, we're in nineteen ninety eight, so we can talk about today's music versus a lot of the classical music here. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> so, if we're going to nineteen ninety eight, I would agree that the music of the era is way more interesting than classical music. This is coming from someone who was in the orchestra, I played violin all through school, and I appreciated playing the music, but I've got to be honest, like, listening to classical music, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I, you know, I went to a symphony once a number of years ago, local symphony, nothing huge, but it was really hard for me to keep my attention on it. It's just with no lyrics, it's really tough. I don't know, maybe I'm uncultured in that regard. But, I mean, I performed some of the music. I, I like the music as an activity. But when you're just passively listening to it, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. You know, in the 90s, we have some really good stuff. We have all sorts of new rock and pop music that's happening. Big bands that are starting to really become major symbols. And there's a lot going on here. So... From Sabrina's point of view, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that she thinks that this is boring music that, you know, Hilda should take to to other people and not bother her with. But I don't know. I mean, wh what's your take on the 90s versus the classical music? Well, I mean, the thing about classical music is it involves like being able to read music and understand music. And, you know, I, I kind of just thought about today's music with like rap and whatnot and focused a lot on that. I guess in the 90s. You can see that the idea of music kind of can blend with vocals and the like. So maybe it's a little bit more complicated. You know, my daughter, you know, she goes to bed every night now with classical music, but it's played to like the Disney type songs. And so it's still classical music, but it's something that you can connect with and have a attachment to because you can remember where you were with the Disney movie. Kind of like My Heart Will Go On, where you have the instrumental in the background and it means something to you because it's obviously more than just the song. And so, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's an interesting concept about classical music and vocals and whatnot. But, you know, the idea that you can make music and read it and have a really good tune with it, to me, that's just, you know, this, there's something special about it. And, you know, my dad would basically that's exclusively what he would listen to pretty much when he was working a second job driving he would turn on the classical music station to kind of just like zen in and just listen to that i guess without lyrics you don't have to worry about certain words or trying to figure out a meaning you can kind of ascribe your own meaning to it so i think there is some beauty in classical music but I, you know it's not something i listen to and i definitely prefer kind of you know my daughter listens to where it's the classical music of a song that you know, but you know behind it, there's someone playing an instrument with really good technique and everything. I kind of like that because you, you kind of get the best of both worlds where it's like, it's a song with meaning, a song you can connect with, but it's still a talent playing an instrument as opposed to using a soundboard or, you know, pre-recorded X, Y, and Z. Like I think most modern music's using. Yeah, I mean, I think that, if we're taking it to modern music, that's a whole other animal there. I have a lot more esteem for 90s music than I do for modern music by far. I love instrumental music, but if you can 
also layer in the vocals. I just feel like that's always better. I feel like that's always more interesting. It's more complex when you have that in there as well. The thing that drives me a little crazy about purely classical music is that I don't like not having any real idea what the meaning is supposed to be. Like, I mean, it's almost like too open-ended. It's a lot harder to connect with for me. When you're playing it, you can kind of feel it a little bit better or a lot better. But I feel like just listening, I don't know, if if someone puts on, you know, Beethoven's Fifth, or they put on some Mozart, or over here I've got, like, some boy bands playing, or some Spice Girls or something, what's going to catch my attention more? I mean, it's going to be the pop music. I mean, it, that's just the reality, for me anyway. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between classical and instrumental, and I completely agree, instrumental. You know, mo- you know one of my favorite things is the instrumental so my brother and I, you know, every summer we go to watch a live orchestra play Lord of the Rings where they do a live and it's like they play the music, but it's connected to the story. And so it's like, I appreciate it so much more because how hard is that? You know, how hard is that? Like Howard Shore was given a scene and he had to somehow like you're in the Shire, what music is going to play for you to connect an instrumental piece to convey the Shire? or a battle, to me, that's like next level. I, I feel like that's just so beautiful to be able to do that. Obviously, the early composers really couldn't do that because they didn't have motion pictures the way that we do. Obviously, I think that's kind of next level. Same thing with vocals, adding in the vocals. Even Lord of the Rings does that where they'll add in certain singing to a lot of the pieces, another element. So yeah, I, I definitely, like to me, that I would say that's my penultimate with regard to music would be like Howard Shore Lord of the Rings soundtrack yeah I agree I love that soundtrack it's amazing I mean that Isengard music that hits me every time the ride of the Rohirrim you know and uh and the Gondor theme and the Shire theme I mean all that stuff I mean it still hits me deep man and we did perform that in the orchestra and when I was in high school. We did the Fellowship of the Ring soundtrack. Uh, we also did some music from Pirates of the Caribbean, actually. So those were uh, those were some good times. I mean, that's my favorite movie of all time. So that's awesome, dude. Like, that's awesome you did that. That is insane. That's pretty cool. And to be a part of that, to be... To me, it's... Man, to create that environment is just so awesome. And yeah, classical music you know, doesn't do that. You know, you may be like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. And people might ascribe certain things to it. Like certain of the early classical musics will be, you know, be played at a wedding. But was that the intention? Not necessarily. Right. Like it's, so it's like to combine the story with, it's just, yeah, that's so cool. You did that. And another bias here is Hilda playing the violin. I think like 20 years from now, when I'm retired and stuff, I do want to play the violin. That's kind of like the instrument that I want to play because I think that's my favorite of all time. And agreed. That's one of the yeah, that's why I played it. I but I've completely forgotten. I mean, I have some muscle memory probably, but I haven't picked one up since high school now. So it's my skills have atrophied quite a lot. But it was uh yeah, it could be a lot of fun. So it's not like start a band. A band. <laughs> Maybe we should start a band. Yeah. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> instrumental band, you know, yes, our, our you know, we would drink the drink and we would basically just be really good at instrumental and only the <laughs> band nerds would understand what's going on. Yes. Yeah. And, and the drink that, that Paul's referring to, you know, we will see come up in this episode very soon that that'll be the main magical element of the story. So hold on for that. So we go to Sabrina's school and Harvey, Sabrina's crush, of course, shows up and he says that the school is having a battle of the bands that he signed all of them up. Hey, guess what? The school's having a battle of the bands and I signed us up. I didn't know we were a band. Every group had to start somewhere. Usually in a garage. We can leapfrog that and start in the gym. What do you say? We have cool outfits. Yeah, we could work on some dance moves. We can put together a light show. I just wanted to be in a band. Me too. We're in. Great. So, does anyone here actually know how to play an instrument? Everybody seems excited at first. Everybody being Sabrina and her friend Valerie, in addition to Harvey himself. But unfortunately, they realize that nobody knows how to play an instrument. We realize here, since this is season two, that Sabrina's friend here, Valerie, is her new best friend. She replaced a character, Jenny, who was present in season one. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But for this point, Harvey, Sabrina, and Valerie are all going to be in this battle of the bands, but have no clue what they're going to do, what they're going to play, or how they're going to make it happen. We cut from here to the Spellman house. And Zelda is dressed in a lab coat, and she's saying that she's so close. She's holding a vial in her hand, and she seems that she's almost on the verge of a discovery. I'm so close! Why don't you drop cold fusion and work on an ink that doesn't stain your fingers? All I need is a formula patented by Dr. Turdlington, which means I would have to call him and ask for permission. Hilda then thinks for a second and says, Isn't he that guy that you had to compete with for the Otherworld Research Grant? And we see a flashback in which this Dr. Turlington is winning the grant, and he is on stage at a podium. Zelda and the other contestants are sitting behind him, and he seems very arrogant as he's up at the podium. His entire acceptance speech is simply to say, I'm better than you. It's been an unbearably long evening of dull speeches, so I'll make this brief. I'm better than you! And he goes to sit down. Zelda decides to take him down a notch by using her magic to create a whoopee cushion at his seat, and so he sits down, and we hear a farting noise. He's embarrassed, but now as we go back to the current day, Zelda realizes that now she needs that sanctimonious blowhard in order to finish her discovery. Hilda gives some advice and says, well, just tell him you changed your medication and that you feel better. That always works for me. Before she can give any more advice, Hilda has to rush off to an audition, another audition. And we see her in a restaurant playing her violin for a man who is interviewing her. And he says that she got the job. Okay, you got the job. You're our new strolling fiddler. Was it my Beethoven? It's just that you fit into the costume. So Hilda has gotten this job, but it looks like it is not for a fancy symphony or anything. She's going to be playing the fiddle at a restaurant. So, you know, with regard to Harvey and the band here, I connected with it because obviously, you know, it took me back to our Christmas story episode about 
the karaoke machine and me wanting to start my own band. But how crazy is it that like no one has any experience and they're just diving in here, signing up pretty convenient that uh, Sabrina can come in here. But like, what was their plan here? No plan at all. I don't think I'd agree to this, right? Harvey's just like, hey, I signed us up for the Battle of the Bands. None of them can sing, play an instrument, write music. I don't even know if they can read music at this point. And now they're just going to be in front of, I mean, I would guess in front of like the entire school or at least whoever is going to show up to the event. So a fair percentage of the school at least. I mean, they could be humiliated here. This is a pretty big swing by Harvey to just dive in. I mean, who does that? Who just signs up for a talent that they don't have talent in? Who does that? Absolute bravado. I don't know. I I kind of took it back because like in grade school, I think it was like seventh or eighth grade. I actually did. It's the only time I signed up for a talent competition. And I did Whose Line Is It Anyway, believe it or not. And so basically we kind of played with the audience here where we had a scripted session we were going to do about, you know, props. Like that was the main one we were going to pick. And we basically put props, every category of props in the hat and drew props shockingly. So, you know, we did a skit on that, but you know, that was well prepared, well planned out. I definitely wouldn't be doing music that I had no idea about. And that was a great show, by the way, whose line is it anyway? I used to watch that all the time. Yeah, to offer some context, Props was basically, so Whose Line was an impromptu, improv show, and the Props segment was one of their main ones, and they would just basically get a noodle pool or, you know, whatever the prop was, and they had to make up some kind of skit based on whatever was given to them, and absolutely hilarious. Oh, it was so good. I still remember those guys, Colin Mockery, Ryan Stiles, Wayne Brady, before he just became a TV show host, apparently. Um, cause I think that's ma- his main job now. Then they would normally have a guest person that would rotate in and out of the cast. And yeah, I loved it. There was even, there was an older British version of the show that would run on reruns all the time. And I used to watch that one a lot too. But then later on then in America, they had like the Drew Carey hosted, uh, you know, of that series that they did. And I guess that's where he sort of transitioned into being a host, too, because now he's Price is Right. So, yeah, he did have the Drew Carey show, which obviously affects me being from Cleveland. Cleveland rocks, uh, man. Yeah, that, that theme song. But yeah, you know, Who's Line, Drew Carey show into Price is Right. Kind of wild that, you know, that was his trajectory, but good for him. Let me ask you this, though, about, you know, this is off topic, but. What are your thoughts on Cleveland Rocks? Where, where do you stand on that song? Oh, it's a great song. Great song. I wasn't sure. I thought maybe it would be like one of those, you know, you hear it so much it's terrible kind of things. But like, I didn't know if it was played constantly in Cleveland, like at all times. No, it wasn't that famous where you'd be annoyed by it. And, you know, listen, coming from Cleveland, it's like, you know, you'll take whatever you can get in terms of <laughs> national publicity. So celebrate it you know just like lebron james you celebrate it like anyone that can put us on the map hey you know we'll support you on that so i did look up cold fusion here and you know so zelda here is trying to figure out cold fusion and basically it's this concept of so fusion occurs like in the sun with really hot temperatures and it makes a ton of energy so the idea of cold fusion is basically a fairy tale like it hasn't happened yet it can't be done because the idea is that you can have that fusion occur at room temperature 
So it would let us use it, in which case we would have basically infinite energy. So that was the idea of cold fusion was pretty much it's a fairy tale that hasn't been done. So for her to have an idea to do that was very interesting. And so it led me to really two different topics here. One was she's a witch. I mean, she could pretty much do whatever she wants. Like, couldn't she just cast the spell to do cold fusion? And the second part was the idea of, again, being an attorney here, the idea of patents here, like the idea that he has this formula that he's able to file a patent uh, with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, which I've used, I'm pretty familiar with. But yeah, you can get a patent for something and then no one can use that formula for X amount of years. And so it's like, is that a restriction on invention or is it appropriate because it incentivizes invention? And so those are the two concepts and ideas I wanted to throw back to you to kind of get your opinions on it. As far as the patent goes, I feel like patents, like I get that you want to protect it because somebody invented that, but I think it does definitely stifle growth. It allows people to like monopolize a certain idea. So, you know, I think there should be like a statute on that as far as like how long it can go. And if he patented this formula, like back in that flashback, it looked like it was a really long time ago in the flashback. So I'm curious, like how long does that last? Like, is it a certain amount of years that's constant or does it depend case by case, like how long you can get control of it? Yeah, they are limited, right? And so it's usually, I mean, it depends on the kind of patent, but you know, it's like, you know, 15, 20 years, something like that. And then once that patent ends, then everyone can use the technology behind it. As long as they don't keep extending it like Disney does with their like intellectual property so that like nothing ever falls into the public domain ever again. You know, I know this isn't the same thing, but that's what it puts me in mind of. Definitely. Yeah. So that's the difference between copyright and patents. Um, but yeah, patents do have a limited time where you can do it, but you can patent stuff and just kind of sit on it for a long period of time if you want to. Now, regarding her ability to use magic to create cold fusion, you know, I don't really have a great answer to that. Um, Now, the doctor is also from the magical world because he is part of this, you know, this other world research grant competition. So you'd have to be a witch to be part of the other world research grant. So we know that much. Now, I don't know if that means that he has some power over this formula and he's able to you know, kind of keep it locked down if it's just a regular patent like we would have here or how that works. But the only other thing I can think of is that there might be, I mean, there are limitations to magic in Sabrina. There are like rules of magic that the ants will tell Sabrina sometimes. Like if you remember back in the episode that we did previously, Sabrina is considering trying to make like a love potion, but you can't do that. It like isn't possible. And then there's other things that are normally funny, like types of rules where they can't summon any name brand products. So I guess that kind of gets into like patenting and copyright again. But like, so if they try to like summon Pepsi, they get like a weird, like off brand version of a Pepsi. That's not like the actual thing. So Maybe there's something with that where it relates to like cold fusion and these other discoveries. I don't know. Maybe there's some limitation. 
but you know Zelda's character is always this very high-minded, intelligent, educated type character. In again, in one of the, in the very first episode we covered, there's this part where she's considering going to a lecture at a university. So this is just more of like I guess this is what she does for fun is that she just tries to like create huge scientific discoveries and advancements. Yeah, that's really interesting about the doctor here being part of, you know, him being a warlock, witch and whatnot. I didn't see that originally. You know, that has a lot of good insight in terms of patent length. I mean, it's like, I don't think they're following the United States patent office here. They they may have different rules where he just has it in perpetuity. So that kind of lines up with her needing to do the things she does to acquire said patent. But Again, we don't know. It's possible, you know, witch magic is limited to some extent. And so it seems like she's not able to create the cold fusion just via magic spell. It seems like that's something kind of unknown. And we don't know anything about the formula either, but that makes a lot of sense that he was also part of that community. So after this, we go up to Sabrina's room and she is practicing with her friends, practicing for the show. We see Sabrina, looks like she's on the bass, and we find out later she's going to be singing as well. We see Valerie on guitar and Harvey on drums, and all of a sudden, Zelda rushes in, thinking that someone might have been injured because of how terrible their practice is sounding. Thank goodness no one was injured. From this quick little scene, we go over to the cafeteria at the school, or Libby, the school bully, and Mean Girl comes up to Sabrina and her friends and says, Well, if it isn't the Electric Freak Orchestra. Oh, and by the way, the cheerleaders have a band and we're going to win. Cheerleaders always win and geeks always lose. I believe they call that the natural order. From this, we cut very quickly again back to the kitchen. And Zelda is on the phone talking to Dr. Turlington. And we hear her saying that this is so kind of you. And... She makes it sound as if they're about to meet up and that maybe she has a chance at getting the formula. She hangs up the phone and then she says, That pompous swine might let me use his formula. I'm going to be able to give the world cold fusion. So Zelda is on her quest here to try to get this formula. We have another quick cut to the restaurant that Hilda's working in. She's now dressed in a sort of cowgirl outfit and she is taking requests on what to play. The patrons, though, of this restaurant are not very, let's say, highbrow. Instead, they ask her to play Turkey and the Straw, and she seems very sad about this as she fiddles away. Back again to the school, and here Sabrina is sounding really bad with her band. They're up on stage practicing, and they can't get it together. The parts are all in the wrong order, and it's just a mess. After they're done with their time on the stage, Libby's band goes up to practice, and they have very much of a Spice Girls look to their band as they go up there. Uh, It's her with some of her surrogates, some of her followers. Libby always has random cheerleader followers with her at any given time. And they actually perform a pretty good song. It's called There's a Little Bit of Me in You. And Libby sings the lead vocals. They have a dance routine. 
they look pretty good. They look like a real girl band up there. Sabrina and her friends are standing off stage watching, and they're getting more and more upset about their uh, impending humiliation here. And Sabrina says, listen, the only difference between us and them is that they're talented. And Harvey responds, makes you wonder if Hitler was actually a good painter. First of all, what does that mean? What does that quote mean? So in, in Hitler's early life, he was an artist. And so part of the sort of myth of him is that like, oh, like, what would have happened if, if he stayed an artist instead of becoming like a horrible dictator? So I think what Harvey might be doing here is that he's watching Libby and he's like, yeah, she is pretty talented, but she's also horrible because she's <laughs> Libby. I think he's comparing her to Hitler, I think is what this means. <laughs> so take that as you will. Yeah, this uh, Libby quote of cheerleaders win and geeks always lose really hit me because again, we've cut, it's weird how we've covered three episodes and yet it feels like they're all intertwined here. And so in our first episode of Sabrina, we remember Jenny, right? Jenny, her friend bringing up the idea that, yeah, people like Libby are going to win now, but later on the nerds, the geeks are going to win. And so we had a whole conversation in that episode about this. And so it, it, it's interesting how that connects. And it kind of led me to think of what happened to Jenny. Why are we with Valerie right now? I'm glad that you brought that up. So I looked into this because I was at first a little bit thrown. I've forgotten that this would happen, you know, that Jenny would get cut. And so what I ended up finding out, there was an interview here from Melissa Joan Hart herself, Sabrina. And she says... There's a lot of politics that go on behind the scenes. Like when a writer develops a certain character, they get paid on the likeness of that character for every episode. If a writer develops a character, but that writer is gone and there's bad blood, they might get rid of the character they developed so they don't have to pay them anymore. So from what I get from this quote is that she is essentially saying that the writer who created the character probably left the show or got fired or whatever, and then they didn't want to pay them, so they cut the character and just put in a different best friend, who in this case is Valerie. So yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting that it could also be a falling out. You know, It could also be like the writer just didn't like the actress who played Jenny and just said, see ya, or maybe Jenny was too demanding or something like that. And they just wrote her off as well, where it's just like, they just didn't want that connection anymore. And they're like, listen, we could just find a new character. I mean, you're literally a friend of Sabrina. We'll just replace you. And I will say that I remember Valerie as Sabrina's friend. If you had asked me prior to the podcast, who is Sabrina's friend? It would be Valerie. It would not be Jenny. So that's kind of interesting that unfortunately, I don't know who's to blame here, but something happened where Jenny kind of just got deleted. Yeah, but I kind of, I agree. I actually remember Valerie more too. And I, she was only there for two, like two seasons though. She's in season two and three. So she eventually also goes by the wayside. But I guess maybe at the time when I was the most tuned into the show, you know, she was probably the best friend that was there. The last thing I want to talk about was Hilda in this restaurant and unfortunately, it just seems like 
it seems like maybe a common thing where the, you know people want certain songs, and I can imagine being a very talented musician, violinist, pianist, whatever. I kind of thought about like Piano Man, Billy Joel type stuff about how there are probably some more technical pieces that they would want to play, but no one knows about. And so they have to play the same songs because, you know, people drinking can connect with where it's like Sweet Caroline or something like that, where everyone's connected. I try to imagine what that would be like, where you're like, man, I just hope someone wants me to play a more complex song. But there are certain popular songs, especially for a piano person that you play. I mean, my wife and I, you know, we went to a vacation where we had a piano person and taking recommendations and whatnot, or a piano bar. We've been there too. And it's just kind of the same songs because everybody knows them. And I just wonder, you know, how that would weigh on a musician. It has to be pretty terrible, right? I mean, I mean, how many times did they ask that person to play piano, man? I mean, come on, you know, you know, that must've happened like every night. I think it's sort of that way where if people have like big hits, like even artists that have big hits that they probably, at some point, like dread performing them because I mean, come on, like how often, I mean, just think about when you listen to a song too much and it starts to like get old, you need to take a break from it, but you can't cause like, that's your thing. You have to keep doing it. So yeah, I could totally feel that. I think that especially she's upset about the fact that just how low brow this is. She clearly wants to be this great violinist in a, in a symphony or something. And so Zelda and Hilda, you know, they're going to both be in less than optimal situations in this episode. You know, Zelda having to convince this Dr. Turdlington to give her this formula, and then Hilda trying to find a way to get some kind of meaning out of this drudgery that she's going through. So it sounds to me like it's time for a little magic. Yeah, they're both kind of lessening themselves to get popularity and acceptance and whatnot. I mean, Hilda probably had a period of her life where she did play more sophisticated music. And maybe that's when she learned the violin. And that's why she has nostalgia for those songs. Who knows? But it definitely seems like they're both Zelda and Hilda are cheapening themselves to accomplish an end. You know, Zelda obviously to get the formula for cold fusion and Hilda just to feel wanted as a musician. Meanwhile, back at the Spellman house, Zelda is trying to make Sabrina feel better about this bad practice that she's just been through. And she says that Libby insults you because she's jealous. You have to be careful how you treat people, even rotten people. You might regret it one day. As she says that, she goes to answer the closet. As we know, the linen closet in the Spellman house is the gateway between realms, so this doctor that she needs to see is going to come in through the linen closet and visit the house. As soon as he comes in, he is holding a whoopee cushion, and he says, I believe this whoopee cushion is yours. And then he immediately leaves, leaving Zelda holding the whoopee cushion. This is not going to be as easy as she had hoped. Downstairs, we see Sabrina trying to brew a potion, She's sitting with Salem, who is nearby the cat, but who is actually a warlock trapped as a cat, and he is counseling her on this potion that she's trying to create. Apparently, she did not know that this was possible, but you can actually bottle talent. 
Salem says, where do you think the expression comes from? Sabrina tinkers with the potions for a while. A six-pack of refreshing talent now with the handy twist top. Cool. <laughs> but I won't use it unless it's absolutely necessary. Hey, I don't care how you justify it. And you promise you won't tell Aunt Hilda or Aunt Zelda? Mum's the word. Sabrina then hides the bottles behind her back very quickly because Hilda has just come into the room, and she clearly doesn't want her aunts to know about it. Hilda doesn't really notice because she's going off on a rant. I think I'll whip up some seasonings to make those Philistines at the steakhouse appreciate good music. Got a peep out of you. Mum's the word. Ooh, deja vu. We have a cut from here back over to the school, and we find out from Principal Kraft that there will be a special judge, Dwayne Kraft, who happens to be related to the principal, and he is the producer of... Rock in a Hard Place, West Bridge's only showcase for local bands. So he is going to be determining the winner of this competition, this battle of the bands. We see a very quick cut back to the Spellman house, and the doctor now is back in the house with Zelda, and he is trying to get her to apologize, and they are still arguing about this formula. Thank you so much for reconsidering and giving me a chance to plead my case, Dr. Turdlington. And apologize. Mostly I just want you to apologize. <laughs> it's a very brief scene. We go quickly back to the school, where we finally see the performance. Libby's band finishes up their performance of the same song that we had seen in practice. They do a really good job. It looks like they're probably going to win. As she walks off the stage, Libby says to Sabrina, Follow that, Freaka McIntyre. <laughs> Necessary. Oh, well, I'm thirsty. How about you guys? Want a drink? Sabrina then decides it's time to use the potion. And she decides to make her friends drink these bottles that she brought with her. At first, they don't want to, but she says, Come on, I need the money on the empties. So they start chugging down these drinks, and there's a little sound effect that happens after each one drinks it when the magic kicks in. When they go up on stage, we find out that they don't even have a name as a band. Please welcome entry number five. Valerie starts strumming her guitar, and she looks very confused, but also very impressed with her skills. Harvey is doing the same thing as he twirls around his drumsticks like a pro. And Sabrina starts belting out really nice vocals. And they're able to perform this pretty good song, actually. Valerie is singing some backing vocals. Everyone's really into it. Seems like things are going really well. And actually, we get some cool camera zooms happening where it goes in and out while they're performing. And the cheerleaders are looking really upset while this whole performance is going on. No big surprise here. Now that we have magic in our corner, they do win. And we have a cut for commercials. There's sort of like on the... Uh, you know, the Paramount Plus uh, where I was watching this, there's like a brief sort of cut where you can tell this is definitely where the commercial break would have been. And then it comes back to the band agreeing to do the show 
live on air that Dwayne Craft is in charge of. So they are going to be televised throughout the town. Pretty serious now. We are in deep with these magical talents because now we have another gig booked. Well, they're so talented. You know, they're so good at what they do. And the song they play is One Way or Another by Blondie, which I guess, so my wife was watching this with me and she said this was like a huge song and then Britney Spears covered it. And that was like the biggest thing for her growing up. So I was like, I don't remember that cover, but it seems like it's probably a big song and that's probably why they chose that song. But they absolutely you know, crushed it beyond recognition here. I remember the original song. I had no idea that Britney covered it, though. No idea whatsoever. So now I'm curious. With regard to this potion, man, like, ugh, this is always my dream. So basically, you know, I'd mentioned in the Harry Potter episode, envisioning myself in Hogwarts. This is the other one of me being a great singer and the potion that would make me really talented and sing. And it's like I would have so many dreams and daydreams and I would love acting it out that I was, you know, especially in the shower and whatnot, that I was this really talented singer and able to do everything, get all that recognition from people. And I just, it's always been a dream of mine, obviously to be a great singer without a great voice. And so, you know, as I'm imagining things, obviously I would pretend that I'm some amazing singer and everyone loves me and whatnot. So to have a potion that did that, Oh my goodness. I mean, that's, you know, this is my dream. I mean, it it really is my dream. And so it got me thinking about what would you want for your potion? My wife said the same thing. She's like, yeah, I'd want to be a great singer too, because how awesome would that be? So what talent would be in your potion that you would be brewing here? So yeah, the, the performer sort of thing, not really my, my bag, not really a big guy for like being up on stage and that kind of thing. One thing that I always wanted to do was uh, to be a great writer, however. Now, I mean, I'm good at writing essays and papers, but I mean, like, being able to write a book, like, something creative, and be, you know, like, bestseller, have your book on the shelves at all the stores, be like, you know, the next Harry Potter, you know, that kind of thing. I would be all about that. So that's probably what I would pick for my talent. Now, I could see you as a great performer, especially back... Well, I did see you as a great performer in college when I witnessed firsthand your your acting skills as you portrayed Hamlet. But as far as like being a singer, I think you would be a great addition or really lead to a boy band from back in the day. Five star, man. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, again, the beauty of singing to me is like it's like Paul Potts on, you know, that talent show where it's like it just if you have a great voice, everyone's just stopped. People are crying. You're the highlight of everything. And it just moves people. And so like the idea that you can have a voice that does that, where it just is transformative of the audience is so cool. What about writing would bring you to pick that as your potion? I think a part of it is that you can gain a lot of like respectability and like, uh, and money and even fame, but still being a little bit in like the shadows. Typically authors aren't, you know, the people run after them on the street and they're like, oh, whoa, it's, it's so-and-so, you know, unless you're, I don't know, like even like George R. R. Martin or like somebody like that, it's not quite the same where 
you're constantly being hounded by your fame, I feel like, in that regard. So I think it would be a more manageable. But I've just always admired writing. I love books, reading. And so to like kind of put yourself in that pantheon and be like, oh yeah, people are going to remember this work and, and respect it and read it and study it and write essays about it, you know, that'd be pretty cool. Well, you'd mentioned Harry Potter, and I guess it's kind of the difference between singing. It's like, you know, J.K. Rowling obviously affected my life, affected your life, affected millions of people's lives in a significant way. But you're right. It's not like, you know, she made her book and that was it. There's nothing else to that. Whereas with music, if you make a CD, album, whatever you want to call it, you also have the live performance. You know, you also have that intimate performance, concerts and whatnot, touring and all that jazz that you can do with literature. You don't do that. So it's like, even though the impact may be greater than music, you don't have like a live performance that an author is going to do. You kind of put it out there in the world. And then you're just, you know, it's like you said, you kind of just, you know, retract yourself, go into hibernation or whatever, and kind of yeah. let everything else resolve itself. But you don't have to deal with the fans. You don't have to deal with anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in her case, I mean, she puts herself out there way more than she even has to with like social media and stuff like that. Like you could just totally just shut off from the world and just be like, I'm just going to stay in my house now and just like collect my checks. Like you don't have to go out and tour and all that. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's definitely my kind of vibe. So back at home, Sabrina is triumphant. She has won. She comes into the kitchen and she says to Zelda that We won! And you should have seen the look on Libby's face. Shock and disbelief really become her. I hope you remembered what I said about being mean to people. So after Zelda imparts this knowledge, this wisdom to Sabrina, and Sabrina leaves the room, we see the doctor coming back in, and he says that he still hasn't forgiven Zelda, but he makes her sit down on the whoopee cushion yet again. Apparently this has been going on for some time. He says, so close, but clearly he is not yet done tormenting her. After this, we get my favorite thing in all of film, TV, cinema, whatever you want to call it, montage. We're gonna need a montage. This is montage territory. We have some epic music playing. We see Sabrina and all of her friends going through the school day, being treated like rock stars. Everyone is chasing after them in the hallway. Valerie has guys fighting each other to carry her books. Harvey is giving his tray to a girl to carry, and she squeals, and all the other girls around her seem very excited to have access to Harvey's tray here. They're basically all dressed up like these cool sort of rock, punk-type stars of some sort, and it looks like they're living the high life here. But next we get into the cafeteria, and now that the montage is over, we see Valerie and Harvey arguing over some of the ideas for the band. Valerie has written a song that is basically about herself that she wants the band to perform, and Harvey has a new idea for the look of the band that nobody other than him seems to be excited about. Sabrina tries to stop the fighting. Love being? Yeah, but we can't sing a song about me. I'm trying to change America. Oh, yeah? Hold it. Why are we fighting? We're friends. Because he has a stupid idea. Oh, yeah, listen, I am not going to perform this like a boss. It's just not. My band. Oh, you're a fan. And it seems like the band is in trouble. 
while this is all going on, we go back to the restaurant with Hilda, and she has now added a type of classic seasoning to the food of the people who are eating there. This is clearly what she was working on before. Clay, we don't need no pepper. Oh no, this is classical seasoning. It adds taste. (laughs) Once they taste this food and the seasoning, they start to speak in sophisticated accents. You know what would be simply marvelous? There's some incredibly obscure Wagner. If you insist. (laughs) Back to the house again. We see Sabrina reading the song that Valerie had written, and Salem says that he might throw up in one of her shoes if he has to keep listening to this. Next up, she tries to call Harvey, but he puts her on hold, and when he thinks that she cannot hear what he is saying, he says, Hey, sweetness, let me dump Sabrina, and I'll be right back. Sabrina says, That's okay, goat boy. I'll dump you. And she hangs up first. Sabrina realizes that talent is ruining their friendship. I wish I'd never given them a swig of talent. It's ruining our friendship, and I can't even enjoy winning. Perhaps you're feeling bad because Libby sang with genuine talent and deserved to win, don't hit me. He then tells her that if they take a sip of flat talent, that their talent will go flat too. So Sabrina twists the top of two of the bottles, letting them start to go flat. But she only does two at first. Salem calls her out on it and says, why did you only open two? And Sabrina says that talent hasn't gotten to her at all. But then she finally gives in and opens up the third bottle. This will bring us into the show, the live broadcast. But it looks like this talented band might be about to go flat. Such a great metaphor with pop and going flat with the bubbles and everything when you open it up. I love monkey's paws, obviously, with regard to wishes and whatnot, where you have unintended consequences here. And so this episode really hits that hard of the idea of getting fame. Obviously, you want it, but unintended consequences, right? Things you never imagined. And so now Sabrina's like, yeah, we have fame. We're going big, but here's this other issue, right? Everyone's got egos now. Friendship goes away. And it's kind of hard with this band ego trying to deal with it i mean i imagine like you know i I thought about our podcast or whatever like if we got big got famous and and we're on shows or whatever like when i turn against you for fame it's kind of like the monkey's paw of like oh i lost matt but i got fame and it was like (laughs) what you mean you mean when we get big and famous (laughs) obviously but yeah i was thinking the same sort of thing and i was like okay what if we did have fame And do you think that it would change us or do you think that we'd be the same? I kind of feel like I, I don't know. I I feel like I could handle it, but then I feel like that's what everybody thinks, right? Until it happens. So I don't know. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, I thought about that a lot as well. And my issue with that is kind of, you know, it made me question their friendship because it's like, is it really the fame that did it, you know? Or was it just that's where they were at and those were the friends they could have and the fame, once they had the ability to get around that, they're like, oh, I'm done now. And so I thought, you know, again, it came back to our friendship and our podcast and I'm like, is that Matt to me? Like, is he just somebody like he's the best I can get now? And then when I'm famous, like... (laughs) I can do better. And so by Matt, I was like, no, that's not true. And it's like, same thing with my wife. I was like, I'm not going to, no, it's like, I feel 
very grounded where fame wouldn't change me. And so it kind of made me wonder about their friendships that this changed them because it doesn't have to change you. I don't feel like if you're famous, you have to divorce your wife and marry someone different, right? I don't feel like you have to change your friendships to be cool with other friends. Like that's still a choice you're making. I mean, it's not like some magic spell that's coercing you into changing your life. And so I think maybe even after this, Sabrina kind of has to look at her own friendships of like, why was Harvey okay with like talking to other girls and saying like, I'll dump her. You know, why was Valerie the same way where she was like, I'll, I'll write a song about me to me at the end of this. It's like they wake up the next morning, maybe they're back to normal and they're like, we got to deal with some of these issues here. Yeah. I, I thought the same thing. Cause it's like the, the magic isn't what's causing this. Like you said, and I, I don't know, maybe it's because we're older, but I feel like, yeah, pretty secure in relationships that I don't think I would go, you know, tossing people overboard here. Like we see in Sabrina here, I guess the one thing I'll say, like, I don't know if I want to defend Harvey here, but we do have to remember they're not actually dating at this point. There's still the sort of awkward, like they like each other, but they won't admit it sort of thing. But Harvey's totally clearly, uh, you know, focused on these other girls at this point. So, I mean, that's alarming. And yeah, Valerie's, you know, ego here coming out with this song that she's writing. And so, yeah, it's a little bit disturbing as far as like, man, is this, is this who they really are as people? It's just being revealed all of a sudden. Yeah. Good monkey's paw reference. We've certainly talked about that a number of times with are you afraid of the dark and other things that have come up? But yeah, this is one of those wishes that it's like, man, be careful what you wish for. Great reference there. Huge Monkey Paws fan. The other thing that hit me in this scene was Sabrina's guilt, right? Because Libby's actually talented. And I understand you may hate Libby. You know, she's a terrible person, whatever. Sabrina feels that way. But like Libby's actually the talented one and Sabrina isn't. And so one of my other daydreams of me being <laughs> this great singer and band person was me going back in time a hundred years ago and taking songs that I know were big bangers, big hits, and then taking them as my own as though I was the composer. And I've thought about that and I've dreamed that out and thought that through of like, yeah, I'm taking really great songs. My heart will go on like you had mentioned, right? Or one way or the other whatever song you can think of all the popular songs. And I just, I'm some genius, right. That came <laughs> up with this because if I'm going back in time. Nobody knows that nobody knows that I was taking it from, from the future, right. From, or from the present, that dream never ever felt satisfying to me because I could never dream that without feeling guilt that I had taken it from somebody. And then I immediately thought about the artist that came up with that song and what their life would be. This was their hallmark creation that I took already. So that was another interesting concept of like, I would feel too guilty to do that. Like I could have the talent and singing and whatever. And I could be like, yeah, you know, it was just a, you know, a potion I took and people be like, you know, Paul, that's funny. But <laughs> taking the music to me would be a little bit too far. So how would you feel doing something like that? Oh, no, no, there's no way I could do that. I, I have way too much of a conscience. It would get to me. I think that that's interesting, though, like to imagine like that alternate timeline of what that would look like. So, you know, if you steal all of the works of like certain artists, 
what did they do with their lives? Like, what happened? That'd be pretty cool. I feel like that, I mean, it's not, but that totally should have been a Twilight Zone episode, because that's basically what you just described. Like, it's pretty much a Twilight Zone episode, and that, like, that'd be pretty cool. Maybe that's what we should be developing. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be giving this idea out for free, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Can you patent this? Can we copyright it? I think we can copyright it. You know, I noticed during the performance, I thought Libby was actually pretty good. The girl who portrays Libby, Jenna Green, I think is her name. I thought she did a pretty good job. I mean, I could believe her as like a actual like pop artist with her sort of Spice Girls copycat group. Yeah, very talented and... You know, especially with synthesizers and whatnot, they could make it work, you know, without reservation. So now we're at the show and we're getting ready for the performance. Libby is there. She says that she left her sweater, but she has to go on a date. And she says that she goes to the carnival when she wants to see sideshow oddities and leaves. So obviously she is still not impressed with Sabrina here. Sabrina right away decides to drink one of her flat drinks, and so she does that right off the bat, and so now her talent is gone. She can't sing anymore. Me, me, me! She tries to convince Valerie to drink one, but right when she seems like she might, Harvey walks in, and he has a girl with him whose name is Sunset. We'll grab some meats, and then I'll tell the others about you joining the band. What? <laughs> Hi. Sabrina, Valerie, I'd like you to meet Sunset. You can't just bring someone into the band, especially someone named Sunset. He says that she is the new addition to the band. They get into a huge fight. Sabrina can't get them to drink. And so the director says that, you know, Sabrina's band could go statewide. You know, this could be their big break, basically. And Sabrina starts thinking that with a lot of money, they could help a lot of people. The director says that they could buy a lot of stuff. Harvey and Valerie do finally end up drinking the potions here after the director comes in, because as Sabrina is thinking about the possibility of maybe going big, in that short time, the two of them have started drinking these potions. So now there's no going back. Their talent is totally gone flat. We get a little cut over to the restaurant. Now all the customers are very fancy indeed. Beg pardon? A woman of my standing enjoys caviar and fine wines. I could not have ordered rootin' tootin' beans. You did, Marlene, and you threw in a hee-haw! Beans, caviar, it all goes well with Rimsky Korsakoff. They want fancy foods now, like caviar, and it seems like things might be going a little bit out of control. We go back to the show, it's not going to be good. They start practicing and it's not working anymore. Well, I see you guys took that bad rehearsal great show thing to heart, huh? Principal Kraft tells us that Dwayne put his butt on the line and that Dwayne's mother is the owner of the house where he is currently a guest and he is intent on staying a guest. So he is putting a lot of pressure on them to pull it together here. Sabrina sends Harvey to go help Valerie, and he asks her to get rid of Sunset. He says that she scares him. So Harvey is all of a sudden no longer into Sunset. Sabrina realizes that there's one person who can still sing, and that person 
is Libby. She casts a spell, and suddenly Libby appears out of nowhere. She's holding a toothbrush, and she says that she was just in the girl's bathroom. What am I doing here? She was clearly brushing her teeth. We cut right out from Libby in her confusion. We can only assume that Sabrina uses another spell or comes up with some explanation to explain how Libby suddenly is not the carnival anymore, but is now at the studio. And we go back home. Zelda is on the phone, and she's calling up randomly. Hello. You don't know me, but I just wanted to say, Dr. Turdlington is a hero. Zelda Spellman is a zero. And she hangs up, and the doctor wants her to keep calling more and more people. But she says that this is it, and she is through apologizing. Either you give me the formula, or you go. The doctor seems to like this. He's intrigued. He says, You know, Zelda, I've always liked you. You... what? Well, the science music is so full of phonies, but I like your fire. And then Zelda says she always admired his mind, but not his personality. The doctor asks her to dinner, and Zelda says, love to. Sabrina has now convinced Libby to sing for her. She agrees to flatter her and do all these things for her if she will go and sing. But Libby says she's only doing this because she loves to sing. Quick little shot back at the restaurant. Hilda's whole plan to make this place a symphonic hotspot is clearly falling apart. Bring this ghastly smear back to the galley and give the chef 30 lashes for his crimes against eating. Customers are now too fancy to enjoy the steakhouse. They want better stuff, and they are storming out left and right. Hilda ends up getting fired because they have no customers, but she does tell the owner that she's keeping the dress. Now we are back at the studio, and Libby is singing... while the band badly tries to keep up behind her. Harvey, Valerie, Sabrina, they're all strumming along, not even really playing their instruments. We have like a track playing over them as Libby sings the lyrics, and they are all faking as much as they possibly can here until finally the song's over. The director says that Libby was great, and she is ecstatic over it. She loves it. Libby gives us one last little dig here at the end. She says the winner won as the freaks looked on in amazement. Take a bow with that line, Libby. <laughs> That's interesting you said about the, because I was wondering because they were playing. So Sabrina was p- still playing the bass and Harvey was still playing the drums, even though they lost their talent. So that's interesting you said that it was, do you know that that was like a backtrack they were playing? Because it seemed like they were like pretending to play, but they don't have the they, talent anymore. Yeah, yeah, they were still pretending to play. But like when you're listening to the scene, the music sounds good. And Libby's singing over it. So I think that they're playing like a track. Yeah, I mean, it could be that. I thought it was interesting the principal here. Worried about losing his home. He doesn't have his own house. I mean, what what was that about? <laughs> yeah, this guy's an administrator. So listen, I can just tell you, you know, if you're a principal of a high school, any self-respecting district, you are going to be making six figures or close to it. 
you know, he's probably making, and I mean, I guess this is back in the nineties. So the money is going to be a little bit different, but if this is today, he's probably pulling in 90, a hundred thousand, no problem. So is he just super cheap and he's just banking all this money and like mooching off of his family or like, what's his deal here? Yeah. I have no idea. Some deeper meaning here behind what this principle is about. You know, I have no clue. That was weird to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It threw me off at first, but yeah, I I guess that's just his, his thing, man. That's, that's what he does. Zelda's acting here. Going to the dinner was kind of odd to me. It's, it's like, I couldn't tell if she was still pretending to want to go with him and and she had relinquished the idea that she was going to get the formula or if, if she was like into it, it was kind of hard to like determine kind of where she was at. And it's like, if she was trying to make it seem like she's still into him, it didn't seem like she did a great job of saying, Oh yeah, I'd love to go to dinner with you. And what were your thoughts on Zelda's acting here prior to going to dinner? I actually thought it was pretty convincing. I thought that they were actually interested in each other. I thought it was one of those things where, you know, two people hate each other so much that they actually have like this weird passion that comes from it and that they were kind of like doing it for real. Now we will find out that that's not really the case, but that I I didn't get that. Maybe you were more intuitive than I was as to Zelda's duplicitous sort of, (laughs) or really both of them are being duplicitous here. Because for one of them, it's an act of revenge. And for the other, it's her still trying to get the formula just in a different way. So, but I didn't realize that at the time. Yeah. You know, he's obviously going for revenge. She's going for the formula, but it seemed like at that, you know, prior to this scene, they had basically given up, you know, he had gotten his revenge and she had basically said, okay, I'm, I'm done with the formula. But yet it seemed like maybe there was some kind of like deep seated romantic angle here where that kind of drove a lot of this. And that's kind of what I was getting from this scene was like, maybe at the end of the day, they, they could work out together. And that's kind of what I was going with. But then obviously, you know, we know that Zelda is still in her pursuit for the formula so it was, it was kind of interesting to figure out where her mindset was at, whether or not she was genuine or still being manipulative. Yeah. And um, one thing that I wanted to mention, too, was, you know, I've got to hand it to Libby here. When she says that she's only doing this because she loves to sing, I was like, wow, Libby's a real person. She has like <laughs> some actual passions and like cares about something. And so that was kind of cool to get a little more depth to her character. Of course, at the end, she has to come back with that nice zinger there. That was a pretty good one, honestly. <laughs> I, I really liked that one. The winner won as the freaks looked on in amazement. <laughs> That's pretty good. I might put that on a t-shirt or it's something. It's like Ozymandias. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, no, she, she knew this was a big moment. Obviously, this band was really hyped up from previous performances. So I, you know, I think she took it as an opportunity here to kind of blossom her own career. That's kind of how I saw it. So again, you know, she's definitely more human in a way because obviously she's trying to succeed and be successful and Sabrina coming in and just kind of using magic to usurp that does make you feel at least a little bit of sympathy here for Libby, but it's still Libby. And, (laughs) and and they do a good job at the end of like reminding you, yes, Libby's going to be the, the villain here, remember? Yes. yes, I mean, but yeah, in all honesty, I mean, if you look at it objectively, I mean, yeah, she deserves to win this. I mean, this is her thing, you know. Sabrina's 
has no talent whatsoever in this regard. So, I mean, Salem, you know, he's right when he points out that, that it was something that she ought to feel guilty about probably. So yeah, but it is still Libby. Certainly she has to come back with something there at the end. So back at the house, we see Zelda and the doctor. They seem to have come back from their dinner and the doctor is saying that if the waiter wants that 9% tip, everything has to be perfect. And he kisses Zelda immediately after this. She seems to like it at first, maybe. Uh, she opens the closet and asks one more time for the formula. And he says no. He says it was all for revenge. But then he asks her to dinner next Thursday. Zelda responds, how about you kiss my cold fusion? And she pushes him into the closet. When she does that, she casts a spell and we hear him yell, give me my pants back. She then has the pants in her hand. I guess at this point gives up on her cold fusion dream because it seems like this formula is not going to happen. Back at the show, everybody seems a little bit confused about why they were fighting. So are we still speaking to each other? Yes. We never talk about how bad we fight today. I can't figure out what went wrong. Was there something in that hummus? Let's just remember not to let anything like this get in the way of our friendship again. You mean success? I don't think that'll be a problem. I blame Sunset. If you forgot who Sunset was, <laughs> that was the girl that he brought in to try to join the band. Back at home, Sabrina is talking to Salem, and she suddenly realizes that there were only five empty bottles here. Salem says, that's very good, Sabrina. Now what color is the tablecloth? But despite his sarcasm, Sabrina says, no, I want to know where the last bottle is. Apparently that sixth bottle was left behind. We get a cut back to where the performance took place. It's in a gym. And so we have this team of guys who are playing basketball. They find the drink and they start sharing it around and trying it out. All of a sudden, they start singing. We start to get some credits playing. And as the credits go, this band of random guys is up on the stage now. And they're performing a song that some of you who are listening to the podcast may have heard of before. Every little thing that you have said and done feels like it's deep within me. Oh, oh, oh. Doesn't really matter if you're on the run. It seems like we're meant to be. I don't care. Pretty soon, there's a whole crowd of people. And they're all jamming out, too. As long as you love me. Now, here's the kicker here. These random guys, these basketball players, they are the actual Backstreet Boys. What you do? they are here performing on Sabrina, the Teenaged Witch, February 1998. So before we talk about anything else, this is the big moment. The Backstreet reveal. What happened when you saw this? Uh, a lot. Um, so my wife had actually been asleep by this point. So I was by myself watching this. And I can't even describe in words to justify my feelings here. I cried a little bit. I felt a hit of nostalgia. So the beginning of this 
when they cut, it's basketball, right? And so you hear the sneakers going against the ground and you hear the basketball bouncing. And obviously one of the main themes of this episode is this idea of a potion to give you talent. And so I'm immediately drawn to Space Jam, right? You know, the 1996 movie with Michael Jordan, the whole concept at the end is that he gives them his secret juice, right? His secret formula in a bottle to his tombs, and it makes them feel special. It makes them feel strong, and they end up being able to win. But the whole time, the twist is basically that it was just water, right? And it was in them all along. And so I was immediately drawn to that. And so I'm thinking, okay, we're talking basketball and sneakers, there's going to be something with regard to their ability to play basketball. So I'm like expecting slam dunks, big threes, etc. And then they cut kind of to the boys playing here and very quick cuts. You can't really get a good eye on anything going on here. And I'm just kind of like, okay, I'm waiting to see them play basketball. I'm waiting to see them, you know, dunk, do really good things with basketball. Again, space jam deep in my mind. This came out two years after Space Jam, so I'd imagine that's got to be the motivation here, is they're trying to harken back to Space Jam. And then they hit Nick Carter, man, and I'm like, no, no way. And my heart, like, I can't even describe <laughs> the the heroin in my veins right now seeing that. I was like, no, that can't be. And then they panned everybody else, and then they start singing. I just... My mind was just completely, and I was like, that's them. They were so young at this time that I did not, it was hard to recognize them because they were even before Millennium, which is kind of the album that I had and grew up with. So they were so young, it was hard to even know who they were. But then they're singing As Long As You Love Me, which is, again is a huge banger, one of the best songs. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's the Backstreet Boys. And so this whole episode, we had talked about me forming my own boy band, me wanting to sing karaoke. The main reason was Backstreet Boys. I mean, it was Backstreet Boys and then in sync, but mostly Backstreet Boys. And so for that to come full circle as like my dream that I had as a kid that I kept reliving all the time of wanting to be a good singer to see that band and that whole thing happen. It's like this episode, it must've like completely determined my whole life. And just to give you an idea of how insanely powerful Backstreet Boys, as I had mentioned in some of our Patreon content about going to a Super Bowl party. Again, this is we're filming this or recording this on March 2nd. Super Bowl is you know, a little bit more than a month away from when we're recording this. And on the way back from my brother's Super Bowl party, I was with my younger brother. And we had basically, even at the Super Bowl party, we had talked about top songs from boy bands, right? In sync, Backstreet Boys. And on the way back, it was a three and a half hour trip. The whole time we were just singing karaoke of songs. And guess Backstreet Boys was one of the bands that we had covered. So we were singing all of their top hits the whole way back, just a month ago. And so it's like to see this, I just, I can't even describe the amount of nostalgia here seeing them in this episode and I had no idea about it when I had picked it. I had no idea when you had picked it. I had no idea about any of this stuff. And so to me, my mind, the twist here, it knocked me off my feet more than anything I've ever seen. 
This is more than six cents. I would say this is the biggest twist that I've ever had in my life. I'm just like, what am I like? This is too much for me to handle <laughs> going on right now. Yes. <laughs> and so I had woken up and the first thing I thought of was, I got to show my wife this. Like she's going to, her mind is going to be blown because she's a big uh, boy band fan as well. Huge Backstreet Boys fan as well. And I was so excited. So I, I was like, baby, you got to see the end of this episode. No, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. So you went into, you went right to the end. You went right for the end. Correct. I mean, you know, the rest of it, whatever, you know, she had seen probably the first maybe 15, 20 minutes of it, but I fast forwarded right to that cut. And so it was so interesting. So I I just put it on my phone, played it. I was like, you got to see this. She was watching it and it was funny. Her mind was the same way that my mind was. (laughs) She was like, what are these guys doing? Like, why are they playing basketball? What are they doing here? Why are they drinking this drink? Why are they sharing this drink? Oh my gosh. And it's like, <laughs> I wish I recorded it. I wish I recorded it. Her reaction of once it was the same, about the same time when you get that like zoom in on Nick Carter, when you know who you're talking about and her mind was just like blown away. And what a perfect end to that. Cause again, if I'm making a boy band, it's to be like Backstreet Boys. If I'm performing with a potion, it's to be like a Nick Carter where people are, you know, going, Oh my gosh, it's Nick Carter. And I, it was just the perfect, I, I just can't fathom how they got them to do the scene. It was so perfect, the perfect twist. And I can't even, again, my words cannot justify the feeling. So this was such an amazing experience. I I'm so glad we covered this episode and I would never have seen that with the podcast, never would have felt that with the podcast. So I'm very grateful that you offered that as an option because this was like transformative for me to Mm -hmm. kind of just get hit with this nostalgia and everything else with regard to me and my, my boy band. It just all came for full circle here. And I was just, you know, again, I, I was teary eyed, very emotional and thinking, how am I going to articulate how amazing this was? for the episode. Oh, wow. That, that that's what this show is all about. Ladies and gentlemen, that's, that is what we aim to do every time that we put out one of these episodes is to get you guys to react to nostalgia, the way that Paul reacted to the backstreet boys here. You know, listen, I was a fan. I, I wasn't like as deep in as you were. I just, when you picked this one, I was like, all right, it's on. And and I just could not wait to hear what you were going to think. Cause I knew that you wouldn't remember it, that you didn't know what the twist was. And I was just, ah, oh, that, that was great. I, I, and to then share it with your wife as well. I really wish you had filmed that. that I would have loved to have seen that reaction. Well, she, oh, but she so was, good. it was on my phone. So that was, that was the problem. Yes. So did you yeah. see, did you watch both episodes or did you know about the twist prior to asking me? Or was it like, you had general yeah. ideas. No, I just remember. No, I picked I picked those two episodes on purpose because I, I remember both of them. And I knew about the twist at the, at the end of this as well. And I was like, you know, if you go down two roads here, we could either go down the Crucible where I go hard on the witch trials. But, you know, I have done that before. Maybe not on the history as much, but definitely with Hocus Pocus, you know, we got into it. And so when you picked this one, I was like, all right, we're going down the other road. This is going to be Paul reacting to the Backstreet Boys. And so that that's what we got. 
Dude, you're I'm like you're next it. level. You're like Morpheus. Like you know, you understand <laughs> the ramifications yes. of both choices, yes, and you're just red blue pill right here. You did not like, and I love that about you. Like you did not even remotely hint that this was anything special for me. Like no, you just you provided both episodes, nothing else. That was it. Like Matt literally was like, "Do you want Crucible or the band?" And that was it. Yes, and I can't. I mean, that must have been hard for you to like not <laughs> say anything more it than was that. Really hard, <laughs> and because then when I did watch it through, and when I watched it before you did, and so then I was like, oh, like after I saw the ending, I was like, this is so good. I hope he watches it soon. And so, like, I did text you. Like, There's a real cool twist at the end of the episode. That's all I said. I didn't like give any detail to what the twist was going to be. So. I'm glad that you didn't accidentally find out when looking up stuff about it. That was my one fear, but thankfully you remained unaware until the, until Nick Carter. And then you knew. Of course, of course. Yeah. Completely unaware. And ugh, man, I, I, I not only own millennium, but at my wedding or you know, our wedding, right? My mom, oh, sorry, well, you and me, yes. right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. My wife, my wife and I's wedding. My mom picked for the Mother Sundance Perfect Fan, also a Backstreet Boys song. So, like, Whoa, I, I thought about your mom. And I'm th- I also thought about my mom, and I was like, oh, it's like, honestly, there couldn't be a more personal connection with an episode. I, I don't think that's possible. It was a twist that was like, oh, I was not ready for that. And it fit in perfectly with everything else too. Like that was the other thing. It wasn't just like a random cameo. Like it fit in with the theme of what they were doing and what they were going for. And like for that to happen, especially just with doing, you know, what I did with my brother at Super Bowl weekend, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is sensational. I mean, one thing that we did very much praise the last time we did Sabrina, what we praised the show for was the writing and the tightness of the writing. And we see that again right here, you know, and I was impressed they managed to thread in all these different storylines. I mean, there are some scenes that are very quick cuts. They're like little gags, basically, and they're not even full scenes, mainly with Hilda, because her story is very much like the like the third story in this, because, you know, you've got Sabrina's, she's always the main story. Then Zelda's story was a bit more in depth. And then you have Hilda with these little quick little just like one liners and little things happening at the restaurant. But I thought they did a really good job of weaving it together. Having Hilda and Zelda both doing things where they were somehow lowering themselves or like going below their standards because that was sort of the thread through their storylines. I don't know with Zelda if this doctor ever comes back again in another episode. If he does, I don't remember him. It was neat how there was that symmetry between their two stories. I thought that was good writing there. And then Sabrina's storyline I really like how they kind of humanized Libby in this one. I thought that was really good. I thought it was well done. It was believable. She's still a mean girl, but she gets some depth to her character here. We know that she has a real talent that she actually cares about. So all that, and then you get the backstreet at the end. I mean, even without the backstreet, though, it's still a pretty darn good episode. I mean, it's pretty good writing here. 
And then that's just like this cherry on top that like, how do you even touch that? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, you're right with the writing. They do a great job establishing people, the whole concept of fame versus who you are as a person, right? And the idea that you may sacrifice some of your decency and some of your pride in favor of placating other people and fame and being popular and everything. And that's the common theme. And then Libby, who typically does that, right? Like she's typically the one who wants to be popular and famous and do everything possible for that. It's kind of reversed. She's the lone wolf here where she's the one person who's not being different to fit in and be popular. She's doing this for the ideals of singing. So it's very great writing here where there's a lot of gray area with the characters, which you typically don't see. And then, yeah, you know, the end of these Sabrina episodes has always been like a funny little thing, like a, a credit scene. It's just like, it's funny. It kind of brings home a point, but to then recreate pretty much the theme of the show, which is like a potion getting talent to be a good singer, but to then bring in that type of a band at the end and like, just have this iconic moment in doing that. Oh, I mean, that's so perfect. I mean, I can't be the only person that's, that's dreamed of like taking a potion and having that type of voice and popularity and fame as demonstrated by that Backstreet Boys scene. Like I can't be the only person that's dreamed of being in that position. And so for that to hit was just like, oh, so good. Well, I know you just said that you can't be the only person who has had this sort of dream. But for us, it's not a dream. Because if you might remember the very beginning, we did take a sip of the potion. So... So as long as we still have our talent before it goes flat, we wanted to leave you with one last number. Follow us on Patreon and Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our Patreon offers access to special posts, a Discord server, and bi-weekly exclusive episodes. Spend time with us there until our next new episode when we return to the 1990s.